Would you please stand and together we're going to sing, Great and mighty is the Lord our God, great and mighty is He. And then shout to the north. Great and mighty is the Lord our God, great and mighty is He. given us. Just ask that you'd be with our service tonight, that in every way it might honor you. I do pray that you'd be with Dave as Marty passed away this morning. I pray that you would comfort him and give him strength through this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Let's continue in singing more about Jesus, would I know, and then more precious than silver. More about Jesus would I know, more of his grace to others show, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me, more, more about Jesus, more, more about Jesus, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. Jesus, let me learn more of his holy will discern. Spirit of God, my teacher, be showing the things of Christ to me. More, more about Jesus. More, more about Jesus. More of his saving fullness. More of his love. Every line, 
Let's all stand one more time as we lift up our voices and we sing, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene, and then, oh, how he loves you and me. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Seventies, the last century, back back in the nineteen hundreds. <laughs> the last millennium. Yes, the, the previous millennium, absolutely. And uh, we did we our very first date. Sandra Joe and I had was with these guys. He worked in a box factory second shift and went college days like me. I worked in a machine shop second shift. And after work, every once in a while, we'd contact. We'd make a plan pre pre-cell phone days, and he'd say, hey, listen, after work, meet me, and we'll go to the house, and Deb will get up and make us onion rings. And chili. So, yeah. And chili. And chili. Yeah, they go together. And so, like, 11.30 at night, can you imagine his wife was willing to get up, and she would make us chili and onion rings We'd, until 1 o'clock in the morning we'd visit, then I'd go crash, and then both of us had 7.30 in the morning classes. I don't know how we did it. Those were the days. There was the onion rings. That's, that's the only way. But uh, because we have served the Lord together, different ends of the world. He was all the way out in Washington State all these years. I've been here in the Northeast. and um, But we've kept in contact. It's always a blessing. But Steve's going to preach for us. But they're going to sing a couple songs. I'm going to give it to you. You guys are all set. 
Now, Tim has, has repeatedly alluded to the differences in our age. Did you notice that? This morning, it almost became a harangue. <clears throat> and so, and I don't think I've ever told Tim exactly how old I am, but I'm 85 and, um, <laughs> and Debbie's 96. So now you don't have to ever, you know, worry about that again. Thank you for letting us come. I mean, it's just been, of course, we're not gone yet uh, because we've got most of another week in Vermont and really enjoying the scenery and, and I love maple everything. Um, you probably wonder what this is. Well, you don't wonder what it is. You know what it is. You wonder why it is. I'll tell you later. Okay. Okay, this one's mine. I know. You can go. 
Oh, I thought you wanted me to sing on the harp. No. Oh, yes, you were singing on it. I'm sorry. I thought it was a solo. But it's not. I'm in trouble now, folks. Your pastor never gets in trouble with his wife. No. Never, ever. I mean, as long as we've known them, he's never said in an untoward word, and his wife's never given him the stink eye or, or anything. But I'm not that lucky. And I'm not as wise as he is either. Well, uh, we were talking about my advanced years, and uh, in April of this year, on the 9th of April, I celebrated my 50th uh, spiritual birthday. It's been 50 years since I came to Jesus. Debbie came soon after that, and soon after she came, I asked her to marry me, but she was 16, so we had to delay just a little bit um, <clears throat> until she got out of high school. Well, until I got out of high school, too. Anyway, uh, one of the, I think one of the, the most powerful testimonies of the grace of God is just the perseverance, just the faithfulness of the Lord, how through all of the years and all of the things that happened, you, you know, God is still there and he still hangs on to you. I mean, sometimes we kind of lose our grip, but God's got a really powerful grip. And this song kind of talks about that aspect of the faith. Been a lot of years, been a lot of tears. Every now and then there's been some pain. Though sometimes I fail when the storms prevail, He has always stayed the same. And I still love Jesus. He's my dearest friend, faithful to the end. I still love Jesus. And He still loves me. When I faced my fear, he was always near. Every prayer I thought he always heard. When I lost my place, he held me by his grace. He has always kept his word. Oh, and I still love Jesus. He's my dearest friend, faithful to the end. I still love Jesus. He still loves me. Oh, I'd never make it through. If it weren't for you, you're my rock, my fortress, you're my friend. Oh, where else could I go? And what else could I know? You are the beginning, you're the end. And I still love Jesus. 
dearest friend, faithful to the end, I still love Jesus, He still loves me. This evening, turn to the obscure passage in John 3, verse 16. We're turning here, it's a formality, right? Because probably you've always already heard this one. Okay, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, we ask you this evening that you would touch our hearts as we home in again on a very familiar passage of scripture. Lord, we just ask that your spirit would give us a blessing and a challenge perhaps uh, as we look over this, this wonderful verse again. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, during the almost 30 years that we pastored in western Washington and the other corner of the United States, uh, we were within 12 miles approximately as the crow flies from uh, the entrance of Mount Rainier National Park. Now, just a survey, how many of you have been there? One. That's probably about average for people in you know, this part of the world. Uh, if you've never seen this particular mountain in the flesh, then it really is very difficult to imagine how big it really is. And the word big actually is a, inadequate as a descriptor for this particular natural wonder. In truth, Rainier is just, it's, it's just gigantic. Uh, to view it from these different vantage points as you drive up to the, uh, the visitor center, uh, even seeing it, it's hard to believe that it actually is big as it really is. What the Native Americans thought of it was summed up in a book published in 1911. And the title of the book was The Mountain That Was God. So that's what the Native Americans thought of it. few statistics might help us uh, to grasp how big Rainier is. Uh, it's the tallest mountain in the Cascade Range. It's 14,411 feet and a tenth inch, I think. But of course, it's a volcano, so it keeps stretching. And, you know, if you look at old maps of it, it says 14,408. So it is getting a little bit bigger, and they are worried about that. It has the greatest geographic prominence of any mountain in the lower 48 states. It's not quite the tallest, Mount Whitney is, but the, the geographic prominence is basically the distance from the bottom to the top. And uh, Rainier's the biggest in that category. In fact, um, it's roughly twice as tall as the Grand Teton out in Wyoming. And to put it in uh, closer to home terms, it's a little bit more than twice the geographic prominence of Mount Washington, which we just drove up the other day. And how many have driven up Mount Washington? That is so fun. I mean, it's kind of expensive, but 
but wow, and I, I told your pastor, I, I found out he hadn't been up. I said, let's go, let's go do it. I mean, we drove up from this beautiful autumn, pre-autumn. It wasn't even pre it wasn't even autumn. It's pre-autumn, you know, 65 degrees down there. And when we got on top, the wind was blowing 65 miles an hour. There was ice all over everything. My wife didn't want to get out of the car, but it's not just wives who can nag. Husbands can nag too. So she finally got out of the car. We trooped up this long stairs and she's having problems with her knees. So I shouldn't have done this, but you know, I had gone up and left her in the car and I went up and I came back. I got on top, you know, where they've got the marker thing and you know, all the visitor center and everything up there. I got back to the car and realized I hadn't taken my phone, I hadn't taken a picture, so I had to go up again. So I went up again, you know, almost, I've got light, you know, we have light jackets, and the wind chill, they said, was four degrees. I mean, it was midwinter for me. And uh, when I came back down, she said, okay, I'll go. So we, we both went back up, and then, of course, she camped in the, uh, in the gift shop and found some stuff, and I said, honey, you came up, buy anything you want, you know. I can say that to her because she's frugal. She's a frugal, and uh, and she bought a few things that were on sale. That was good. So, anyway, uh, twice as tall, more than twice as tall as Mount Washington. So this is this is big. Uh, it has the largest single mountain glacial system in the lower 48. Uh, a ranger up in Mount Rainier told us one time, if you we're going to take all the snow and ice off Mount Rainier. And you took Safeco Field, which is where the hapless uh, Seattle Mariners try to play baseball. And I mean try. Uh, and you scooped the ice cream or the ice and the snow off that mountain. It would take 2,000 scoops to clean that mountain off. So it, it's just, it's really amazing. And it's a killer. Uh, people die up there all the time. I think the total uh, since records have been kept is over 400. Uh, those aren't all climbing accidents. Some of them are just, you know, falls on trails and things like that. But still, it's very dangerous, and it's dangerous as a volcano, and they have all kinds of volcano uh, escape routes because, you know, the last time Rainier really blew up was 500 years ago, and Seattle was much smaller 500 years ago than it is now. In fact, it was, it was not there. Now there's millions of people living down there, and of course, uh, what happens when you sound the sirens is all the roads plug up and people get killed anyway. So it's, it's just a dangerous mountain. But the really interesting thing about Rainier, and the reason why I'm even talking about it, is because after you get used to it, and we lived again in the shadow of it for many years, um, you can actually forget it's there. I mean, it just, uh, uh, as big as it is, as beautiful as it is, as majestic and powerful and dangerous, after a while, you kind of lose sight of it. Uh, even though you can't possibly miss it, it kind of becomes the wallpaper of your world. It's just the background of your life. And in this way, Mount Rainier becomes a parable of God's love in the average Christian life. There's a, there's a, direct, um, a direct correlation here, if you will. Uh, and this, of course, is where John 3.16 comes in. Because John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible about God's love. No, it's just the most famous verse in the Bible, period. It is just, uh, you know, it's just amazing how this piece of scripture is uh, 
branded, if you will, on, on the Christian uh, memory or the psyche. And, and this is the problem with it. Familiarity, of course, breeds contempt. Uh, we've got posters with John 3.16. They put them up at football games and they put them on uh, tea towels and bumper stickers and, you know, everything. And when I say everything, I really mean everything because your pastor, uh, in appropriate fashion, gave me a quart and I could drink it without breathing. I just love this stuff. This stuff's just really amazing. Uh, but I was looking on it and it says, uh, call or text 802-393-1241, John 3.16. On this. I mean, it's just everywhere you go. And because of that, because it appears in multiple translations in the front of all the Gideon Bibles, um, in fact, it, there was a quote I read, it said it is perhaps the most translated sent, sentence in history, and the conservative estimate is that John 3.16 has been translated into over 1,100 languages. Well, and because of this, because we've heard it so many times, and we know it backwards and forwards and, you know, in our sleep and all of that, we think there's nothing else that can teach us. We look at it and, uh, you know, as something that does not commend itself to serious Bible study, in fact, some of you today, when you heard my text, tuned me out. Because, of course, there, you, you know all about it. You know all about John 3.16. It's kind of Sunday school stuff. It's a VBS, a memory verse, that kind of thing. But the Bible's answer, of course, to this misconception is found in Hebrews 2.1, where the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Now, I know we don't want to let God's love slip in our lives. And so, uh, since, you know, John 3.16 is all about love, and since that love is infinite, there probably won't drain the well if we look at it again. So there are four observations, basically, I'd like to make on this passage. Uh, and the first is that we see God's love declared. We see a declaration of God's love. For God so loved the world. And of course, the first thing we want to notice, and many times in Bible study, we, you know, we ask all kinds of analytical questions. And, and the first one is, who said this? Who is saying this? And, uh, and, and as far as I can tell, there are differences of opinion. Uh, but most of your red letter editions of the Bible, uh, this verse is in red letters, and there's no reason for us to think it wasn't Jesus. I've read a commentator who said that they thought it was maybe uh, the Apostle John making some commentary. But if you look at the flow of the passage, uh, it probably was Jesus who said this. And, um, and the statement is in the editorial third person, so it took the form of kind of a, a pronouncement, an official pronouncement. Uh, in truth, John 3.16 contains one of the most important soteriological or, or passages dealing with salvation that we can find in the entire Bible. And here, in effect, we find Jesus uh, teaching systematic theology uh, to a Jewish scholar. And so Nicodemus, who came, of course, at night because he wanted anonymity, uh, he got more than he had, had bargained for, I'm sure. Now, Jesus declares here that God loves the world. 
And so it's important for us to understand what that means, especially in light of other passages, because, of course, the skeptics are always saying, you know, your Bible has all these inconsistencies, and these contradictions and things like that. Because in 1 John 2.15, we read, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that's, you know, it's a, it's a justifiable question. But we need to understand that these are different concepts. And in 1 John, the references to the world as an organized system uh, of evil, which opposes the knowledge and the rule of God in people's hearts. That's the world. It's one of our enemies, the world, the flesh, of course, and the devil. Uh, this world is also the world that Jesus warned his disciples you know, he said, if the world hated me, the world will also hate you. That's the world that we're talking about. But in John 3.16, Jesus' references to uh, the world means, of course, to its people. And, uh, we, you know, we say uh, in that Sunday school song, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. You know, red, brown, yellow, black, and white, they're all precious in his sight. And so it's talking about uh, God-loving people. In other words, John 3.16 says God loves everybody everywhere, always. It's just a very blanket statement uh, and without exception. I'm, I'm sure that you would believe that, you know, there's nobody out there. And of course, the devil will always try to make people think that out of all the people in the world, yeah, maybe God loves everybody, but he doesn't love you because that's the way the devil works. And, um, and we have to understand that's just one of his lies. But it's important that we know this because just knowing that there is a God out there isn't really enough. Because down through history, of course, people have traditionally and overwhelmingly, I mean, really an atheist is a kind of a, a, an odd duck in our world because most people have believed in some kind of deity down through history. But most of them were kind of scary. When, when I was in high school, our Spanish club took a bus trip and we went to Mexico City. And at Mexico City, they have the Archaeological Museum. And the Aztecs were very religious people. Uh, and I saw this stone statue uh, with an ugly face on it. And it was hollowed out inside. And this is where they would throw the hearts of the human sacrifices that they would kill on these pyramids. And I read in the National Geographic, it said, if, if you were captured in battle, that's usually what they did with you. They sacrificed you to their gods who were always angry and never satisfied. And you'd be climbing up these steps uh, to this pyramid to be sacrificed. And there'd be this bloody, yucky ooze coming down and you'd be slipping and everything. And then when they finally got you up there, and then they'd kill you. The, a lot of the gods that people have envisioned because, of course, of the sinfulness of the human heart, we feel guilty because we're sinners. And so a lot of people have just concocted these kinds of pagan deities. But here Jesus informs us that not only is there a God, but that he loves us. And that, again, is, is good news. I remember when I was a kid, before I became a Christian, my folks were not Christians initially. And uh, um, we always had a, a, a prayer, you know, at the meal. And it was... God is great, God is good, and we thank him for our food, amen. The God is great part is no good without the God is good part. You, you've got to have those two, and that's why the Bible is such a, a comfort to us, because it shows us what God is like, and God is good, and he loves us. 
So foundational to our understanding of God is that he loves every person on the planet, every sinner, if you will, regardless of race or creed or national origin, personal conduct. We remember, too, that God is no respecter of persons, which is a real blessing from Acts 10.34. And what does God loves everybody mean? Well, essentially, it means that he wishes the best for everybody. God wants the best for you. Now... That doesn't mean, and, and, and again, God is a father, not a grandfather. And so God is not in the habit of spoiling. You know, and that always drove me crazy when we pastored, you know, these ladies in the church and somebody to have a baby and everything. And they talk about their grandchildren and how they were going to spoil them. And I said, listen to what you're saying. You're, you want to spoil your grandchildren and then send them back to their parents. And I'm thinking, this is kind of twisted. You know, isn't it? Okay, I'm going to spoil my grandchild and then send it home, send the kid home spoiled to one of my children. What kind of a parent is that anyway? I mean, I mean, it's fun to be nice to him and everything, but the idea, when you have a spoiled piece of fruit, what do you do to it? Throw it away. Don't spoil your grandchildren. That's no extra charge. You know, it's just, that's hobby horses and it happens to us all but 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 it's important that we understand you know the ramifications of the love of God is that God wants the best for you and unfortunately sometimes what we think the best for us is and what God thinks the best for us is they're, they're poles apart you know George MacDonald said uh, you know God wants to give us the best but oftentimes we don't want it we don't want the best we want something else you know, like uh, Jesus said, if, you know, if they ask for a fish, we give them a stone. And McDonald says, what if they ask for the stone? You know, as, as, as sinners, sometimes we ask for the stone. And God in his love sometimes gives us a stone to teach us a lesson. I mean, there, I mean George Bernard Saw said there are two tragedies in life. One is not getting the, the desire of your heart. And the other is to get it. Because if you've got the wrong desire, if, when you get it, it won't satisfy you anyway. So... Uh, God wants the best for us because he loves us. Um, but before we move on, I want to say that though for God to love the world sounds rather impersonal because again, it's a blanket statement about everybody everywhere. Uh, God's love for us, in fact, is very personal and it's very intimate. Uh, Stalin said one death is a tragedy and a million deaths is a statistic. In other words, when the numbers get big enough, we don't, they don't affect us the same anymore. And so, you know, if you read For God So Loved the World, we know we're in there somewhere, but it sounds kind of dispassionate uh, to me anyway. But it's important that we understand that even though Jesus had compassion on the multitude, he loved the individual. There's a great verse in John eleven five that says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That's a wonderful verse to have in tandem with John 3.16 because these were real people, individual people that Jesus loved. He loved them. He hung out with them whenever he was in their area, stayed at their house. I'm sure there were quirky things about their personalities. Of course, we know, you know Martha was workaholic and Mary was more of a, a kind of a worship addict. We don't know much about Lazarus except we know that Jesus loved him. And when he died you know, in this passage, he raised him from the dead. But these were real people. 
And Jesus loved them. And he loves us. I could just as well say, you know, but Jesus loved Pastor Tim and, and Sandy. I have him love some of you, but only, I only know John. You know, I'm, I'm just really limited in my applications here. But, but we can say that Jesus loves you and Jesus loves me. And it was cool because we sang the chorus, oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Because it's so important for us to see that. Secondly, we see God's love demonstrated. It says that he gave his only begotten son. And this is where the so comes in. He so loved us. It's, it's huge. Again, it's going back to Mount Rainier. It's just so big. We can't really wrap our minds around it. And we certainly don't want to take it for granted. But this is the answer to the skeptic's accusation that God doesn't care about people in this world. They're always saying to, you know, non-Christians are usually saying to Christians, well, you know, if your God's so great, if he's so good, and if he loves so much, then why doesn't he do anything about this mess? And of course, our, our retort is, yes, he has, he, he did, he is, and he will. I mean, he is in process of doing everything that his love can do to rescue our, our civilization, our whole world, from the consequences of our own stupidity and sinfulness and, and, uh, and foolishness. And, and then, of course, you've got some smart aleck says, well, if God cared so much, why did he just come himself? You know, why did he send his son? Well, if you're a parent, you know. Would you rather suffer or see your, your son suffer? Well, you'd rather suffer yourself. God loved us so much that he sent his only beloved son. I mean, he sent his only begotten and beloved son to come down here. And the truth is that God has given his absolute best for our ransom. He paid the highest price that was possible. There was nothing more that he could possibly do, even though God is omnipotent. He has all power and he can do anything. This was the most that was possible for him to do. And sadly, of course, if that's not enough, then he's done with this. I hope you understand this. God does not change the rules because... You know, I mean, they blow with the wind in society and even in theological circles and things like this. But God's standards have always been the same. They always will be the same. I am the Lord. I change not. He's, you know, and, and this is the way of salvation, period. No other name given under men whereby we must be saved. That's all there is to it. And sadly, of course, if it isn't enough for us, and if we're trying to play, as you were, chicken with God somehow... You know, oh, well, God won't, you know, he won't condemn me. Uh, I, I want a different deal. God's not a used car salesman. It, it's, it's not that kind of a thing. And Hebrews 2.3 says, how should we escape if we neglect so great salvation? That's what we call a rhetorical question. It means that's a question that doesn't need an answer. That's the kind of question when I was a kid, my mom says, you want me to slap your face off? That's a rhetorical question. Oh, sure, mom, please slap my face off. You want me to jerk you bald headed? Now, obviously, some of that took place. So the answer is we won't. Now, Jesus is the living logos or word of God. He is the message for mankind sent down from heaven. And if we will not hear it, then God has nothing further to say. And they say, well, you know, why doesn't God accommodate? Why doesn't? Because he can't. He can't. I mean, there's some things that God can't do and he can't violate his own nature. And these are the rules that are there. And that's just the way it is. 
But unfortunately, of course, it seems the human race would rather do anything other than bow its knee to God. I mean, there's this, just this, well, what, what's the, what's the insult in the Old Testament that was con constantly given to the Jews? They were stiff-necked. They didn't want to bow. And, and of course, in all of us who recognize our, our personal sinfulness, there's, there's a little of that stiff-necked stuff. It even happens in marriage sometimes. You know, you get into it with your beloved. And, uh, you know, you know how it goes. We, we don't need to elaborate on that. But the human race uh, would rather do anything than bow to God. And I was talking to your pastor the other day, and we were lamenting how now, I mean, they go from one thing to another. And now civilization, the world is going to rescue itself by colonizing Mars. Do you, do you know how stupid that is? I mean, we have a, a beautiful, perfect planet here. I mean, God designed it. It's just so wonderful. And it has water and oxygen and, you know, food and all kinds of that. And I do notice that you, your church eats a lot. <laughs> I, you know, and I, I'm sorry that I'm not going to be here for the big meals. You know, I got the donuts and I did get more than my share. It was really nice. The ladies out in the van saved me an extra. And then they gave my wife one and I tried to wrestle it away from her. And she did give me part of it. But, you know, you start talking about piles of pancakes and breakfast and everything. And that's because uh, fellowship always works better if you have something to chew on. And Jesus knew that. And, of course, multiplied loaves and fishes and things like that. And I do think food was one of God's absolute best ideas. And it's good to know that there will be uh, food, some kind of banqueting in the afterlife without repercussions which that I'm looking forward to very much because I'm hoping there'll be pure maple syrup and it won't raise your glycemic index or, or whatever thirdly we see God's love distributed oh I forgot a Lewis quote I better give this to you because, um, because your pastor loves my C.S. Lewis quotes uh, C.S. Lewis said this he said History is the long, sad story of mankind's attempt to find something, anything, other than God to make them happy. That is so true. It's just, anyway. All right, number three. God's love distributed that whosoever believeth in him. Because Paul said, so then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Uh, God's providing the means of salvation didn't mean that everyone automatically was signed up for the kingdom. We know that there has to be an application, there has to be a reception, if you will, of the, the gospel into the person's heart. The gospel has to be distributed. And uh, this is, without a doubt, obviously a missionary-hearted church. And I, I commend, you know, I commend all of your efforts. Uh, Deb and I have, you know, we always promoted missions very strongly in our church, and we did the mission uh, you know, the youth mission programs and uh, overseas and all of that. I mean, it's so very, very important because you can't hide your light under the bushel. You know, you've got to get it out there so that it can be transmitted. But the, the, the biggest problem, I mean, the, there are logistical problems, uh, you know, how to get it out into the world. But of course, the biggest problem or the biggest challenge is getting people to believe in it in the first place. Uh, the great reformer Martin Luther said, The sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent 
that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ. Because that's basically, it's this, this, you know, philosophical battle between, you know, we say Jesus loves you and he, and he can help you. And the devil's whispering in their ear, don't be a sucker. You know, don't, don't swallow this big lie. Well, we know it's not a big lie. But we do know that there, this is a world filled with lies and deception. So it's easy to be skeptical. I mean, when you're burned, it, it's, it's natural to be cautious. But then, of course, the gospel also strikes at the root of our selfishness and has some pretty stringent requirements. In Luke 9, 23, it says, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, that's them fighting words when Jesus is speaking to uh, our old nature, you know, because I don't know about you, I've still got an old nature. It rears its head once in a while. Uh, you know, I'll have something happen and all the fruit of the spirit on my tree falls on the ground and rots. You know, I, I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but uh, it means that it's difficult for us to uh, accept fully the requirements that Jesus has laid down. And the only reason why he makes these requirements that sound so ridiculous is because the only way that it'll work in our lives is if we go all the, you know, all, as we used to say in Iowa, whole hog. You'd have to go whole hog. I mean, all the way in because uh, a little bit of religion, you know, a little bit of spirituality is just enough to make you miserable. It's not enough to give you the blessings that God wants you to have. In a way, it's kind of like the coronavirus vaccine. You know, you have all the fuss and bother of getting billions of doses distributed all, the, all over the world. That's expensive and, and cumbersome and all that. But then you have the even bigger problem of the people who don't think it'll work or, you know, they think it's a hoax or they think it's dangerous or whatever. And, and, and you know, however you feel about it, the, the illustration is still true because if people don't think the gospel will help them, then there's really nothing that God can do for them. Well, finally, we see God's love developed. And, uh, and, it, and the verse says, should not perish, but have everlasting life. So the gospel message, once it's planted in the human heart, does something. It's, uh, it's compared to seed, right? The mustard seed, it's small, begins to grow. Um, and in John 3, 16, of course, we're told that whosoever believeth him, first of all, should not perish. A better translation uh, would be will not perish. I mean, there's not a question there. If you really believe, if there's biblical belief, you should not perish and you will not perish because this is God's remedy for that. And that's good because unlike the coronavirus, sin has an unavoidable 100% kill rate. And not only will it kill you, it'll kill you twice. You'll, you'll be involved in the second death, and we certainly don't want that. But all those, of course, who place their trust in Jesus will be spared these torments of this eternal uh, uh, ostracization from God, who, you know, just naturally, as we move away from God, we begin to die, because he's the source of all life. In him is life. And so we, we want to be with him, not separated from him. Secondly, it says that whosoever believes in him will have everlasting life. And uh, everlasting life is, of course, without God would be a horrible thing. But with him, and, and that's the thing, the point is not so much duration, uh, although we are going to live forever, that's true. But the real key is found in the word life. 
Uh, in the second part of 1 Timothy 6.9, it says that they may lay hold on eternal life. But the literal Greek in this means uh, or says that they may lay hold on the real life. The real life. I mean, our world has such a warped idea of what real life is all about. I remember the, I don't know which beer commercials it used to be. Uh, they broadcast and the guys would be sitting around um, the fire, smelling bad, swatting mosquitoes, drinking Budweiser or something. And they said, man, this is real living, you know. Well, not really. Real life comes from God. And Luke 9.23 says, if any man will come to me, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's a, that's a, Tim will, he won't say anything about that, that I, that I said that. I'm sorry. Anyway, you ever have that happen to you? I don't know what happened. Well, I, I got, I got off track in my notes. I said something I'd already said before. But this life that God wants to give us. See, John says, if you make a mistake, don't talk about it. He said, just go on. Yeah. I blew it. I, I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm not candidating or anything. You know, it's just, we're, just, we're just visiting here. But the, this life that God wants to give us is, is of a quality that we've only sampled in the tiniest measure. In our closest and most intimate moments of fellowship with the Lord, when the Holy Spirit comes over us, washes over us in waves, uh, the, the glory is just very palpable. Those are tiny samples, uh, you know, because people are always saying, well, they don't want to go to heaven because who'd want to go to heaven and spend all their time, you know, praising God and kneeling at the throne and everything like that. Well, they don't know what we know. Have you ever spent, have you ever been in a revival or something where, you know, the spirit was so powerful and your, your heart was just so in tune with God and an hour went by like that? Because, because, of course, we're with God. It's going to be like that. Of course, there won't be any hours, there won't be any minutes, and there won't be any time at all. Anyway, it'll be an eternal state. But being with God will be a good thing. And I always told my people, because, you know, people have questions about heaven. And is Fifi going to be there? And, you know, my cow and my, my cat and my... And I know I love cats, but, you know, I said, well, I'm sure if you get to heaven and you're not happy... You know, God will refund your sins and let you go, you know, if you really, if you really don't like it. And I, and I always told him, I said, people who worry about heaven worry me. I mean, there's so many things that are worrisome to worry about, but heaven certainly isn't one of them. Now, I cannot possibly oversell this. There, there's no language to oversell this. There, there are no words that can possibly describe what a good deal... God is offering us. You know how you go to the fair? You, you have fairs up here. And you go and you have the hucksters. You, maybe, oh, I'm sorry, maybe you're one of them. I, you know, I don't, I don't mean people that are selling apples or something like that. But they always have new gadgets and things that they want to they sell. And it'll do everything. Have you ever heard one of those? Have you ever bought one and then went home and it was just a little bit of a disappointment? You know, like, like the one he demonstrated with must have been made of different stuff than the one that he actually had in the box when you gave him their $20 and you took it home, told your wife, this is the greatest thing in the world, and you got it out, and then she stands there like this, you know, while you can't make it work. Because what? It's been oversold. 
We cannot oversell the love of God. Nobody can oversell the love of God. Uh, and I always, I always told my people, I said, you won't be in heaven five minutes before you're going to regret so many things. Because you'll be so overwhelmed with the embarrassment of riches that God will give us that we know we don't deserve. That's just all of grace. And just give it because he loves us and because our need is there. Uh, there's, a, there's a passage, surprisingly, that was written by C.S. Lewis. At the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, if any of you know, what they're, they're stories for children, but they're, they're wonderful. Um, and at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis concludes the final volume where the children have, have died in a train crash. And they've gone back to Narnia, and Narnia is representing heaven, and Aslan represents Jesus. And this is what he said, the last sentence in the series says, All their life in this world... And all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. At last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what's going to happen to us. Is that awesome? Where it's just going to get better and better. You know, and God is infinite. So, you know, we learn things about him while we're in our sojourn down here. But we will learn new things about him, new perfections that he has, and wonder, wonders that is part of who he is forever. It'll never end. It'll get better and better and better. And if people only knew, if people out there only knew, people out there that are desperately trying to find again something to make them happy other than God when God is the one that they so desperately need. Amen. That's that's where, you know, that's the whole that's the whole thing. So, you know, there's John 3:16 again. I mean, we we sometimes we just kind of leap over it and everything. Deb and I were in Western Washington a while back because we had somebody in our in our former congregation who had died and we went over for a for a funeral, and of course, since we were over there, we decided, well, we'll swing through Mount Rainier National Park. And, and you forget just how big it is. It's just so big. And that's God's love. That's God's love. It's just so big and so wonderful. And we need to revisit it again and again, because God gives it to us for that purpose. Pastor? Well, I appreciate Brother Steve preaching for us tonight. Uh, like I said, he's retired. He told me, he says, boy, I'm a little bit nervous. He said, you know, you should be worried. I said, no, no I'm not. you said, should I be worried? I didn't say should you should be worried. <laughs> <laughs> I just said I hadn't preached in a long time. Did, you, did I really say that? I think you did. I'm not but, sure. You know, we may have. A, I'm accustomed to being heckled. It's okay. And it's all, I am, it's all, yeah, I, I am I accustomed, accustomed to being heckled too. So I did tell him. I said, I'm not worried at all. I said, anything you say that I need to fix, I'll just fix it. <laughs> so I did want to take just a minute and talk about spoiling grandkids. <laughs> there are some things in this world that are a little better spoiled. <laughs> For instance, cabbage. 
makes wonderful sauerkraut. But it has to be a little spoiled. Cheese starts as milk, but it's going to be just a little spoiled to make it good. Yogurt. Yogurt's going to be just a little spoiled to be special. I want to meet your grandchildren. <laughs> it is good to have you in the Lord's house tonight. And it is, you know, one of the great things about pastoring a church for so many years is you're just kind of a family together. And Brother Steve and Deb, they pastored their church out there in Washington State for 30 years, something like that. And um, their heart, a piece of their heart is still there. I, I was almost going to tell them what you got for pastor appreciation. Oh, go ahead. No, no, that, that's okay. That's all right. Oh, I guess I will. Go ahead. <laughs> so, pastor appreciation one year. Listen that, up, because, you know, he probably doesn't have one of these. <laughs> <laughs> I am definitely not um, hinting for one of these. <laughs> but um, Brother Steve, he said they, Pastor Appreciation Sunday... They came up to him with a card, and he opened up the card, and he just he just thought, oh, this is a prank. This is a joke. They were serious. They bought him and Deb funeral plots up there on the mountain. And so he opened, he thought, this can't be real. It was real. So that's quite a pastoral appreciation gift. Right there. All right. That's right. Wanted them close forever, and that you got to keep that happy thought. It's not. It's not they were hoping he would drop dead. It was that you know, we want to keep you close forever. Yeah. The congregation was split about that. They were split about that. Some wanted you to go, and some wanted you to stay. All right. Good to have each of you out tonight. I thought we had a great donut Sunday this morning. We appreciate so much Ann and Priscilla working the snack shop for us over here. They did a great job. And um, Brother John, appreciate him helping us get the trailer down, getting it all set up. It's, uh, it takes a church. It takes a church and effort, cooperation. Amen? Amen? Let's have a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you so much that we could come to your house tonight. And I do thank you for each and every one of our brothers and sisters in Christ that are here tonight. I do thank you for old friends like Brother Steve and Deb, who uh, they're a part of our lives. And I'm grateful for that kind of connection. And I thank you, Lord, for your word. John 3.16, most familiar verse that will ever be. And it's, it's just the truth is so amazing. We thank you for it. I pray that you help us to meditate upon it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for coming tonight.